How do you know if you trust someone? Is it kind of a gut level feeling? Uh, Maybe it's a a proven track record, a personality type that you resonate with. Maybe it's a mixture of those. I think trust is something that we value highly, uh, but if asked to define it, I think we would struggle to define exactly what trust is about. We want to trust others. We want to be seen as trustworthy. And I think we would all agree that trust is foundational to any kind of meaningful relationship. I'm going to give you an example of a time uh, when I did not trust someone and also a time uh, when I clearly did. And both of these have to do with my car. So the first, I went to get kind of routine oil change, uh, tire rotation. I went to this place I'd never been before. And um, I was waiting in the waiting room. I was like reading a book. And they called my name and said, "Uh, your oil change is done. And I immediately thought, well, you didn't say anything about that tire rotation also that I asked for. Uh, So I went up and I said, "Um, great, did you rotate the tires? And he said, "Uh, did you ask me to? And I said, yes. And this was his exact response. Huh. Well, I guess we probably did. (laughs) Exactly like that. I was not convinced. So there's not a lot of trust in that relationship at that point. On the other side, an example of trusting someone. um, My family has bought two cars uh, from a family friend named Chip who lives in the Dallas area. He owns a a small car dealership in the uh, Plano area, but his main business is auctions. So he goes uh, to auctions and buys cars for people. So what you can do is you can give him the parameters of what you're looking for. Now, this requires a little bit of flexibility to be able to do this. Uh, But you can say, I want this kind of car in this range of years. We like these colors. Here's our price range. Don't go above this number. You give him all that kind of stuff. And he goes to these auctions and If he sees a car that matches what you're looking for and he takes a look at it and it looks good, he'll bid on it. And if he wins, congratulations, you just bought a car you've never seen. And uh, so a few years ago, we uh, wanted to get a larger car. Our family was growing. And so we we had our eyes on a Honda Pilot. And uh, so we kind of set him loose. All right, Chip, go find us a Pilot. And it had been a month or so. And he called me the night before he was going to go to this auction. And he said, hey, Tomorrow morning, I'm going to this auction. There's several pilots that meet your parameters on the list. I'm going to go look, and and I'll text you and let you know how it's going. I said, great. So the next morning, I'm sitting at work at my desk, and I get a phone call from Chip, and he just says, guess what? I'm driving your new pilot. (laughs) And so it was fast. But the reason that we were willing to delegate such a big decision, a decision of that financial magnitude, is that we trust him. We have bought cars from him. Many people in our extended family have, you know, he he gets us a great deal. They're always high quality cars because he owns a dealership. He brings his mechanics with him. They know how to assess if it's going to be a good deal. He's also just a very godly man. We trust his character. We know him. Now, scripture affirms that God is trustworthy and that we are meant to trust him. And I mean, really trust him. Not like in a, I'm supposed to trust God kind of way, but actually trust him. Not just if things are going well. It's supposed to be a trust rooted in his unchanging character, a trust that affects our perspective on life, a trust that uh, leads us to be ever loosening our grip on control throughout our lives, a trust that um, leads us to yield our outlook and priorities more and more to him. But even though he is trustworthy, And we are called to trust him. We often don't. 
I think part of our problem is our metrics of trust are not quite calibrated. Um, in many cases, we measure our circumstances. So we just look at our life. And, you know, if, if our life is easy or things are going well or, you know, uh, we're comfortable, then God is doing his job. And so I consider him trustworthy. But when you read scripture as a whole, you find that that is not a biblical outlook at all. Or we kind of measure God's track record, right? Like, what's his batting average? When I pray and I ask for something specific in a specific timeline, like, what's his percentage of answering my prayers in the timeline I would prefer in the manner that I would choose? And if he's got a good batting average on that, then he's trustworthy. Can that be right? Or I think we do this a lot of times, and I don't think we actually realize we're doing this one. We take the focus off of God as being trustworthy, and we put it onto ourselves. And so we're not thinking about God is trustworthy. We zero in on how good we are at having faith in him, how much effort we're putting in to having faith. And we just think, man, if I just muster up enough faith, enough trust in God, then he's going to take notice of that and be happy with me. And then he's going to reward me for being faithful. But what we've done in that instance is we've taken the focus off of God and his trustworthiness and put the emphasis on our ability to perform for him as being someone who trusts in him. Can that be right? No, it's not. So what does it look like to trust God? Why is he trustworthy? How can we assess if we do actually trust in him? Now, these are some of the questions that we're going to touch on today. But the root question that I really want to zero in on for today is this. How do I know if I really trust God? How do I know? So if you brought your Bible with you, uh, turn to Luke 18.1. Luke 18.1. If you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, uh, here's all the books of the Bible. Luke is right here. It's the third book uh, of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. So go ahead and open up to that. We will have it on the screens, though, as well. Um, and by the way, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those on the table home with you. Uh, that would be our gift to you. There's also highlighters and pens and things so you can follow along and take notes. Um, so we're in this series called Jesus in His Own Words, in which we are looking at five uh, parables that he taught. Uh, parables are these short stories that Jesus would tell. This is a way that he uh, communicated was through these stories. Uh, the first week we looked at the parable of the great banquet. Last week, the parable of the lost sheep. Both of those were about God's love for us and how he, in, he invites everyone to be close to him. He goes after the people who are wandering. Um, and today we're going to continue uh, by looking at a parable that deals with trusting God. And it's been uh, dubbed by scholars as the parable of the persistent widow. So we're going to look at it, Luke 18.1. Let's jump into it. It says this, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Let's stop there. This is Luke's introduction uh, to the parable. Um, So I want you to circle, if you're taking notes, circle circle the word to, okay? Jesus told his parable, uh, disciples a parable to. This is a marker of purpose. Luke is saying, I'm about to tell you uh, in his narrator's voice why Jesus told this parable that he's about to recount. And so he says, Jesus told his disciples this parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. Highlight that phrase, always pray and not give up. That's the reason Jesus told this parable. 
Now, it might seem when you read that phrase just at a glance that it, it's going to be a parable that's about basically just pray a lot. You know, just, just kind of keep praying, or it's a, a parable that's about prayer, but that's not exactly what the parable is going to be about. As will become clear when we look at the parable, it's really not about prayer itself. Prayer is an indicator of something deeper. Um, and so when this says, uh, always pray, it's not about like, this parable is not going to be about the mechanics of prayer or how to pray. Um, always pray is kind of separate grammatically from not give up. Now, uh, some of you know this, the, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. That was the language of the, the Mediterranean world in the first century. And so when we read our Bibles in English, that's a translation from what the original authors wrote. And, and sometimes things get a little bit lost in translation. Our English translations of the Bible are actually really good uh, overall. It happens to be in this case, with this parable, there are going to be a few things we need to go back to the original language for uh, to understand. And that phrase, not give up, in the original Greek, it meant literally, don't be in a bad way, don't get discouraged. That's the connotation of that. I think when you just read, always pray and not give up, that just sounds like, just keep praying. But really, they're two separate ideas. Always pray, and also, don't be discouraged. That's why Jesus is telling this parable that we're about to look at. He wanted to encourage people to keep praying, and also, don't be discouraged. So let's read the parable itself, starting in verse 2. He said, this is Jesus speaking, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. So let's stop. That's the end of the parable. Lots of things uh, to, to pull out of this. this things just layered with meaning. Um, there's two characters presented in this parable. A typical thing that Jesus did is he would talk about a spiritual truth and he would contrast two people and their different responses to, to what God is saying. And, and so he's got two characters here. So uh, circle both of those if you're taking notes. You've got the judge and the widow. And they're going to be contrasted. Um, the judge is described as not having a relationship with God, really no respect for God at all. And it says he doesn't care what people thought about him. Highlight that. Um, cared what people thought. He just doesn't, doesn't care. Um, but that translation, again, loses a little bit of the force of the original Greek language, which literally says uh, he was incapable of being shamed. He, he felt no shame. He had no qualms about acting however he wanted to. He had no shame. Um, and so you have this judge uh, who doesn't love God, no relationship with God, has no shame about the way he lives his life, incapable of being shamed. Then you have the widow, who would have been a helpless person in that society, um, and she just keeps coming uh, to this judge over and over, and she's saying, grant me justice. Highlight that phrase. Grant me justice. More literally translated, vindicate me, defend me, is what she's saying. Defend me. Against whom? She says her adversary. Highlight that. Again, that word doesn't quite get at the original meaning. The original is closer to accuser. Defend me. 
against my accuser. The word there, accuser, is uh, equivalent to what we, we might say uh, a plaintiff, someone who's brought charges against someone else. She's literally saying, vindicate me from my accuser. It's not some adversary like I'm just in a fight with someone. She's on the defense. Someone is accusing her, and she's appealing over and over and over to this judge for help. Defend me. And this judge does not care. And he just doesn't care. And then in a moment, I think Jesus is being funny here. You know, Jesus had a sense of humor. And there are moments, it doesn't necessarily jump off the page at us. I think he's being funny in this next moment. It's, it's, he's telling this parable and just the absurdity of what happens. He's going to basically say, you know, what the judge is thinking about this whole thing. And, and he puts in uh, the mouth of the judge these phrases. You know, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, just admits this, because this widow's pestering me, I'll do what she says. You know, it's a very emotionally intelligent jerk, basically, that he's <laughs> describing. You know, very self-aware, you know, even though I don't care. Um, but this judge is presented, he, you know, he finally grants this um, wish of this widow, but out of total self-interest, I, I just want to get her off my back, is basically what he's saying. And then the parable ends with this really odd phrase at the end. It says the judge was worried that she might attack him. Highlight that right there. Attack me at the end. This widow isn't messing around. She might attack him. Um, that's a little odd. Again, uh, there's, a, there's an ancient figure of speech going on here that I think was translated a little bit too literally into English. What it says is um, basically she's going to come uh, giving me black eyes, which Sounds intense, but that was a, a figure of speech that meant basically uh, I'm being worn out due to annoyance. Like she's just annoying me. And so he, he's saying, you know, if, if I don't grant her justice, she's just going to wear me out by annoyance. I just need to get her off my back. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, there's a lot of nitty gritty we had to do there to, to pull out the full nuance of what was being said. So I just want to kind of summarize and paraphrase it. Basically, the story is this. This shameless judge doesn't care about God, keeps getting harassed in his eyes by this helpless widow. She's crying out, defend me. I'm being accused by this person. Please defend me. And the judge finally says, okay, I'm just so sick of it, of dealing with you. You're going to wear me out. Go. That's essentially the, the story. That's the picture. So what's the point of that? It's kind of an unusual story. What's the point? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus just told us what we're supposed to get out? Hey, look, verse 6, he does. Let's read it. And the Lord said, this is Jesus speaking, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on the earth. So what is Jesus saying there? Um, first, he, he contrasts himself with the judge, who he calls unjust. Highlight that. The unjust judge. He applies that word to him. He's an unjust judge. This man didn't care about God or people, but Jesus is saying, like, even he, this unjust judge, ultimately did his job and gave justice to this widow. And, and Jesus is saying, how much more will God Almighty the embodiment of love and justice, defend and vindicate his people, if even this unjust 
judge ultimately did it for the wrong reasons? How much will God do that for his chosen ones, the church, those who've placed uh, their faith in him? And he says these people, his people, are crying out day and night. Highlight that phrase. They cry out to him day and night. He's talking about prayer. His people, Jesus is saying, pray and pray continually about life's struggles. And, and Jesus is saying, God is going to see his people vindicated. He's going to see them defended ultimately. And this vindication is going to happen quickly. Highlight that word, quickly. Uh, I think we, we might interpret that to mean soon, uh, but the Greek word there actually more has the connotation of suddenly, decisively. God is going to restore things, make things right, bring justice on the earth decisively, uh, suddenly. God is saying, Jesus tells us, he doesn't need to be pestered like the unjust judge in order to bring justice. In fact, he already has plans to ultimately bring his will about in the world to defend his people, to vindicate himself, to have things the way they're supposed to be. And then Jesus ends uh, his little commentary section with this rhetorical question um, When the Son of Man comes, Son of Man was the term Jesus most often used to refer to himself. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Highlight that phrase. Will he find faith on the earth? So why would he ask that at the end of this discussion? Um, To know that, you've got to rewind a chapter in Luke. Because if you back up a chapter in Luke, Jesus had been talking about his return one day. When he comes at the end and he puts things right, his ultimate return, um, and, and, and now he's kind of circled back around to that topic with this final question. He's saying, when I come back, at the end of time, when I'm going to recreate everything, everything's going to be made new, am I going to find people you know, who have faith in me? Will he find people who trust in him? despite the trials of life? Will there be people like the persistent widow who've kept on praying, kept on believing, and trusting in him, believing he's good even when life isn't? That's what he's asking. So how do I know if I really trust God? That's the question that I I posed at the beginning that this is addressing. Um, And so I want to give you the answer now, and then we're going to kind of unpack that for a minute. How do I know if I really trust God? Here's the answer perseverance in prayer is exterior evidence of an interior trust in God. Perseverance in prayer is exterior evidence of an interior trust in God. Jesus said in explaining this parable that his people cry out day and night. They keep praying. They keep praying. They keep praying. They persevere in continuing to pray. And what does that communicate if you continue to pray? It means when God's people continue to pray, they keep thinking that God is there, that he cares about them, that he's present. There is a fundamental trust there on which they build this life of prayer, of of continuing to communicate with God, continuing to invest in that relationship, even when life is tough. They just keep coming back to God over and over again, just like the widow kept coming back to the judge over and over again. She trusted that the unjust judge would ultimately come through. How much more can we trust God when we continually go back to him? We believe he's there. We trust that he cares 
and then he's listening. And Luke, remember at the beginning, told us the purpose of this parable. Keep praying and don't get discouraged. So if you're wondering about your relationship with God, wondering if you really trust him, a good piece of evidence, not the only one, but a good diagnostic is your prayer life. Not that you're praying perfectly or saying the right things. The mere fact that you're praying and keep praying demonstrates that your faith is real. You trust that God is there, that he cares, that he hears you, and ultimately he's going to put everything right. That's what this parable is about, is the persistent trust in God expressed by this perseverance in prayer. You know, perseverance, if you were to look up the definition, it's, it's, it's the steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty, despite failure or opposition or a delay in achieving a goal. So you know what that means? Persevering in prayer. It's okay if your prayers are angry. It's okay if they're challenging prayers to God or you're in the depths of sadness. What matters is that you keep praying. Continue talking to God. You know, this is what we see in the Psalms. You want an example of this? Go read the Psalms. They are full of completely honest reflections on on a real uh, life that's being experienced and a real relationship with God. You know, God, where are you? That is all over the Psalms. I don't understand, God. Save me from this. And then simultaneously with that, you get these affirmations that, God, you're good and you're there and I trust you, even though life is tough. And God has invited that real honesty from us. He has invited us into a real relationship with him. And the way that we persevere in praying is an external manifestation of a trust that's inside of us. Now, this is not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. It's, and it's not a formula. You know, race, relationships are not based on formulas. You know, there's not a, a calculus you can do. If I just do this, then this is going to happen. I think where we tend to, to go astray on this is we, when we struggle in life, uh, we just stop talking to God. You know, typically when we're stressed or going through something tough, it's like, okay, God, I'm, you know, you're not really helping here, I got it. And so we just kind of stop talking to him. Or the reverse, we only start talking to him when things are difficult. And then if our prayers aren't being answered the way we want them to be or in the timeline uh, that we would prefer, we can go down this path of leading to thoughts like, you know, God must not love me, or maybe he's not listening, or maybe he's not present, or Maybe he's not real. You know, we can, we can begin to think those things. Or maybe we feel uh, ashamed about something and we think, well, I can't approach God now. Look at what I'm thinking or look what's going on in my life. I'm not worthy to approach him. But that's not true. He wants us to. He invites us to, to be close to him. And closeness requires honesty and proximity and consistency and all those things. The parable of the persistent widow teaches us that prayer is not a magic spell. It's not about, I just say these words in this right way and then this result will happen. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is instead a consistently applied discipline born out of a real relationship with God. It's not about saying the perfect words to like get through to God. Okay, it's more like uh, exercising. Um, We got some CrossFit fans in here today, don't we? Yeah? CrossFit people, what are they called? I don't know the proper terminology. Crossfitters, Crossfitters, okay. 
So CrossFitters know this, or if, you know, if you're into any kind of regular working out, let me ask you this. What's more important? What would be better? 14 perfect workouts in the span of a year or 180 mediocre workouts? I'm thinking the second one, unless those 14 are just unbelievable. I'm kidding. What's more important is the consistency. Look, our prayer is not a performance piece for God, like for his benefit. God is not trying to get us off his back. We don't have the unjust judge. We have a loving father who wants to hear from us all the time. That's what we have. And our consistency in prayer tells us if we trust God more than the quality of our prayers. Are we continually going back to him and talking to him? God wants us to trust him, really. Actually trust him. But how do we do that? If, if our continued prayers are kind of evidence that we are trusting him, uh, how do we come to a place of trusting him? How do we maintain that? The key to a, a durable trust like that is to have a clear sense of who God is, a clear sense of his character, and to know him personally. The book of Hebrews puts it this way, chapter 12, the first couple of verses. It says this, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. You could translate that word faith, trust, same word. The pioneer and perfecter of our trust. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And it tells us how. Fix our eyes on Jesus. And I'm going to put this up on the screen so that we can all zero in on it. Fix our eyes on Jesus. That is the way to grow in trusting him. We just sang this earlier. Fix our eyes on Jesus. We continually look to Christ, reflect on who he is. He is the all-powerful, loving God who gave himself for us. We must not fixate on our circumstances and hope that they will generate a trust in God for us. No, they won't. We have to fix our eyes on Christ. We have to look to Jesus. And, and if we do that, if we continue our focus on him, of who he is and what he did for us, we will find our trust in him deepening. We'll find ourselves knowing him better. And it says, I love this passage in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That means he went before us and gave us a reason to trust in him. And he's the perfecter of our faith, of our trust in him. And you know what that tells us? He helps us grow in our faith in him. He helps us trust him more, which is good because it's not easy to just muster up trust in God in our own strength. That doesn't work. We have to ask Jesus to do that in us and look to him to remind ourselves of who he is. And Jesus knows something about perseverance, by the way. It says in Hebrews there, he endured the cross for us. He proved his love. He's now sitting in victory, in power, at the right hand of God, and he's invited us into a relationship with him. And as we step into that relationship, he cultivates that trust inside of us. And we will find ourselves, as a result, going to him, praying consistently, persevering in prayer. 
in good times and in tough times. We will have that durable trust in him rooted in the knowledge of who he is. We will want to celebrate the joyful times with him and lean on him when we're in despair. You fix your eyes on Jesus and the spirit begins to help you trust in him more and more. Um, You're going to see some things begin to blossom in your spiritual life, not all at the same rate uh, or in the same way, but you'll find some things begin to be true. Like the parable said, you'll find that you are praying consistently. Even if you feel they're haphazard or inconsistent or they're not very eloquent, you'll keep praying. You keep talking to him because you believe he's there and he's real and he loves you and he cares. You'll find that to be true if you fix your eyes on Jesus. You'll find that you begin to hold your possessions more loosely. You'll find your priorities changing. Your sense of security and self-worth will deepen and, and be rooted in who he is and who he says you are and not in what you think of yourself. You'll begin to not relate to God as if he's a genie in a bottle whose sole purpose is just to give you what you want. You'll find that you think about serving others more. You'll, you'll find yourself experiencing an inexplicable calm in circumstances that probably should rattle you. But the word says that God does that. It gives us a peace that uh, we can't understand why we have it. And we begin to relate to God as a loving heavenly father. You fix your eyes on Jesus, these things begin to be true of you. Trust comes from knowing someone. God is trustworthy. And he invites us to know him and to trust him. And to trust God is to experience freedom. A real freedom to know God, experience his love, trust in him, not in spite of the tough times, but especially in the hard times. You know, Psalm 23 is this very famous passage in the Bible. It talks about, um, the psalmist is writing, you know, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I am comforted because you're with me in the valley. It's a very biblical picture of who God is and trusting in God. You know why? It's not saying there's no dark valleys in life. It's saying when you encounter that dark valley, you're not alone. I am with you in the dark valley. And Jesus, when when he says that, that's not just a sentiment. He came and lived life and knows what those dark valleys feel like. And by the way, he walked through the darkest valley ever. And so when he says, I am with you in that dark valley, we know he understands and he means it. Endurance in prayer, perseverance in prayer, again, is, is a, a key piece of evidence that, that God is, is, is working trust in our life, in our hearts. Because you want to enjoy that relationship. You want to lean into that relationship. I want to just close with a few words that the Apostle Paul used to describe what we experience when we trust in God. And it's in Romans 15. Paul said this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you see the words used there? Joy, peace, hope. That word was used twice. All of those things growing out of the soil of trusting in God. That's what God wants us to experience. 
is joy and peace and hope. He wants us to know him and to really trust him with our lives. And did you notice at the very end of that verse, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there it is again, saying that you can't just muster up this trust in your own strength. God's Spirit is going to help grow this in you. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, and here the Holy Spirit is going to give us the power for this trust to be real. And so we have to ask God to do this in us, to give us that kind of trust in him we are meant to experience. And then as a result, we will see this prayer life, this perseverance in praying begin to be a feature of our life. So let's pray and ask Jesus to do this work in our hearts.